0: Check, check. Well, good morning, y'all. Good morning. I was just testing. It's, Dude, it's the class hall. That's what it is. It's like it makes me feel like it's the morning. It reminds me of 8 a.m.s and stuff. <clears throat> How are y'all doing tonight? Good? Y'all, let me tell you from the jump, I'm a holler back kind of preacher, so I need you to talk a little bit when I'm going, all right? If you like something I say, be like, come on, come on, go, go a little more. You know, you can say, spit that chocolate. You can say, come on, Brother Luke, whatever you want to say, I'll be here. I'll be listening. Sound good? There we go. Come on. Awesome. Well, first things first, I wanted to uh, go ahead and introduce you guys um, to my family. So I got this picture that we're going to put up um, on, these, on these two screens next to me. This is me and my wife. She's also seated in the orange hat over here. And if you can't tell, she's got a baby bump over here. So I know, right? Come on. <clears throat> so praise God. Praise God for the bump. I like to say we are pregnant. A lot of people don't like the we, like when the guy says we are pregnant, because they're like, oh, it's the, gr- the girl's pregnant, but I still feel like I had a part in that, so it's like, you know, we, we, we are pregnant. See, that joke landed. That's good. Um, come on. I'm just trying to make it feel like family in here. This is, this is family talk, all right? Cool. Um, so this is my family, uh, me and my wife, Sydney. Um, I also got, a, I'm from Woodlands Camp, so is anyone Woodlands people in here? Yeah, we got a lot of Woodlands people in here. If you don't know what that is, um, we're a camp in Cleveland, Georgia, and I get to work there full time, um, along with my best friend Cole is over here, and some of our interns are also here, our next team, Um, and then we have a lot of summer staff too, so if you have no plans this summer, um, or if you have plans this summer and you don't like the plans you have this summer, we have plans for you, potentially. So if you'd like to work at a summer camp, um, hang out with kids, have a whole lot of fun. Talk to us after. We'd love to talk to you about it. Um, but where, where we're going tonight and where we've been is we've been in this series called When in Doubt, right? And, and we're talking about these doubts that as young adults, as college students, for you guys, these doubts, these things that come to our minds frequently and sometimes get us to start to question things, question our faith, question God's plans for us, question all, all sorts of different things. And this morning, where I want, this morning, tonight, sorry, I'm used to preaching in the mornings. Tonight, where I want to go is a topic that sounds simplistic, but I think if we don't have absolute certainty in this area of our faith, we miss it all. And so tonight, tonight, what I want to talk about is is God good? Is God good? Because I think oftentimes it's really easy for us to doubt in God's goodness. So my mission tonight, i got two things that I really, 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 really want to do tonight. Number one is I want to extinguish the doubt of God being good. It's the first thing I want to do. Second thing I want to do, and we'll get to this later, this is the practical step, but I want to establish the certainty that God is hallowed when you hope in him. Establish the certainty that God is hallowed when you hope in him. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Sound good? Awesome, come on. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for Revive. God, thank you for Logan and the, the way that he has um, put this ministry uh, as one of his first priorities, God, that it's something that he cares about deeply. And for his wife, Aaliyah, who I'm sure keeps him on the right course often, um, God, just love both of them and love what they're doing here with um, the college students at UNG and the surrounding colleges in North Georgia as well. Um, and Lord, now, after worship, God, after telling you that you are worthy. After singing these praises to you, after remembering what the blood is and what you use the blood to do for us, God, we're just at a place tonight where we want to be close to you. We want to be close to you, and we, we know that when, when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And so, God, I'm asking, I'm, I'm begging that you would come and fill this place with your Holy Spirit. That your presence would invade every single heart in this room, God, including my own, Lord. I pray for myself, not selfishly, but God, I I want your voice to be the loudest voice in this room. So, God, if I have any of my own thoughts or my own ideas, take those and kick them out the door. And let it just be you, God. Let it be you, your thoughts, your wisdom, your spirit, your truth, your goodness that comes and resonates on every heart in this room tonight. And God, I pray against any distractions. I pray against any, any illnesses or, or any depression or anxiety, these things that the enemy will use to try to get in our minds. God, I pray against in each and every one of those things in Jesus' name that you would remove them from this room so that all, us each and every one of us can meet with you tonight. And it's in just your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. And the people said, amen. amen. Come on. Well, when I was young, my parents had a nickname for me. Anyone else's parents give them nicknames? My parents' nickname for me was Rockhead. And there's, there's two reasons for Rockhead. The first reason is that I had a, a larger head than I should have as a kid. I came out of the womb with just a big head. It was like like half head, and the other half was torso and legs. That's just the way my body was built. You can say it's built different, but it wasn't a good built different. It was like the bad built different. It looked bad. Um, so I was called Rockhead for that reason because I would hit my head on a lot of things because it was so big, um, but I never really got hurt. So they're like, oh, rockhead. Second reason they called me rockhead is because I was stubborn as a rock. I was stubborn as a rock. They, they would try to get me to do things, to eat vegetables, to go places, have these experiences. And um, because I was so stubborn, I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. I know it's right, and I know that I don't want to do that, and so I'm not going to do it. And my dad would try to make these decisions for the family. I'm like, Dad, you're doing it wrong. This is the way it's supposed to be. Or I would be so stuck in my way about my my feelings or my emotions towards something, and no one, not even my parents or my dad, could ever change my mind. I was stubborn like that. And I tell you that because I think it's important when we are on the topic of God's goodness that we are not stubborn. It's super easy for us to in our own ways, in our own thoughts, and, and because of what's relative to us, think that, okay, whatever, whatever goodness is to me, that's what goodness is to God. And if God doesn't match up with that, then he's not good. I'm here to tell you tonight, that's, that's not how it works. See, God's goodness is not relative to what you might think or, or what I might think. God's goodness is relative to him and him alone. So I have a quote from a great theologian. His name is Lil Wayne. I'm just kidding. It's not Lil Wayne. It's Wayne Grudem, but you can call him Lil Wayne or Big Wayne or Wayne Grande, whatever you want to call him. But this is Wayne Grudem, a great theologian. He says this about the goodness of God. It's on the screens. He says the goodness of God means that the means that God is the final standard of good, and that all God is and does is worthy of approval. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, and that all God is and all God does is worthy of approval. And that's important, especially at the beginning when it says, he's the final standard of good. This is what I was talking about when we say, you know, what what you might think about goodness, what I might think about goodness, it's not even part of the equation when it comes to the goodness of God. God is the final standard of goodness, and we have to start there with a baseline tonight because if we don't start there, if we start thinking that, that God, you know, he, he has to bend his goodness to the way I really want his goodness to look, his goodness to me looks like blessings and prosperity and wealth and fast cars and big trucks and nice guns and all, all sorts of things. That's what, yeah, hey, come on. We're in North Georgia, right? I can say that. Yeah, come on. But that's what, that's what goodness sometimes looks like to me, but that's not what goodness is to God. See, he's the final standard what he says goes. And so I wanted to start there, and the scripture that I really wanted to look at tonight is um, is a hard scripture to read. And I say that because when I was thinking about, okay, where do I want to go biblically for, for talking about the goodness of God? You can pretty much just open your Bible randomly and, and go, look, there's the goodness of God. Look at this story. Look at that story. And that's true. You can do that. <clears throat> but where I wanted to go tonight is not anywhere like that. And I'll tell you why. It's because There's two groups of people in this room. There's the group of people who who know the goodness of God well. You've experienced the goodness of God well, probably at a young age. You've grown up in the goodness of God. And if I were to tell you a story about David and Goliath, David killing Goliath, look at how good God is, you'd be like, yeah, come on, it's good. You'd be encouraged, but you wouldn't be challenged. And if you're in the other group of people, this is who I really am here for tonight, you, you might be in a place where you're feeling afflicted feeling hurt. You feel like there's a war going on in your heart or your mind. You feel like you're in a place where you are uncomfortable. It's not where you want to be. And if I were to tell a story about the goodness of God, where God's just good to people, you'd be like, cool, God's good to them, but he's not good to me. And you you wouldn't be convicted or challenged or encouraged in any way. So where I wanted to go in scripture tonight is, is a book called Lamentations. And so, ladies, if you see a guy who was just flipping right to his Bible in Lamentations, that's a, marry him, because he knows where Lamentations is. I'm just kidding. Maybe. Who knows? Um, Lamentations is a book, the first word being lament. And lament is, is, it's a poem of sorrow. It's sadness. And the book of Lamentations is surprisingly well-crafted. And I'll tell you why. Because when people are in anguish, when people are hurting, when people are are in a bad spot, it's not common that they they just go to to poetry and it's like stanzas and it's symmetrical and there's this, this, and that, and this all matches. Typically when I see people who are in anguish, people who are hurting, it's just word vomit of all of their pain and sorrows, right? But that's not what happens here. See, in Lamentations we have Jeremiah it's most likely Jeremiah. There's some scholars that argue differently, but there's a whole lot of reasons why it is Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is, is here, and he writes five chapters. Okay, so five chapters, chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 4 all have 22 stanzas. 22 is the number of letters that are in the Hebrew alphabet, and what's cool in chapters 1, 2, and 4 is that all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are used in each of those chapters, not doubled not ones missing, all of them are used perfectly. And it's the, the same thing when you get to chapter three. Chapter three, there's 22 stanzas as well, but each stanza has three lines, and it's 66 verses. And then in chapter five, there's some less symmetry and some less poetry, but it's still 22 lines. So what I'm trying to come across, the point I'm trying to make is, is why is there so much so much structure put into a book that's all about lament? Well, and the, just the backstory, the context of the book. Jeremiah is writing because the city of Jerusalem was just destroyed uh, by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians captured all the people and sent them into exile. They burned down the temple, burned down the wall. There's destruction, and Jeremiah is here, worked up. He's sad, and he puts all of this sadness into this beautiful, beautiful poem, this lament. And I wonder, because all scripture is God-breathed, if God inspired. Jeremiah to write heartbreak well structured because he sees the world just like that, that God sees the world like this, that there's there's goodness and there's evil and it's crazy, but all of it is in the palms of my hand. I wonder if God inspired this book to be written like that just just to show that reality too can be like that. So lamentations we're looking at verse. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 33, this is 33 of 66 verses in the middle chapter. So as far as the book goes of Lamentations, this is the middle verse. This is the, the crux, the climax of the entire book. And it says in verse 33, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. For he, talking about God, does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. There's two things that I really want you to catch here. Uh, The first thing is the assumed premise. The assumed premise. If you're taking notes, write this down. The assumed premise in this scripture, just from reading it, is that he does not afflict from his heart. That means that he, God, is the one who afflicts. It's assumed just from this verse. God is the one who brings affliction. That's tough. We're going to get to why, you know, you're like, okay, Luke's talking about the goodness of God, but he's talking about how God brings affliction. How does this make sense? We're going to get there. That's the assumed premise. And then the second thing is the explicit statement. The explicit statement here is that though God is the one who afflicts, God does not afflict from his heart. The assumed premise, the explicit statement. God is the one who afflicts, but God does not afflict from his heart. Let me tell you this, the degree to which you understand the first point will directly impact, it's directly correlated with how much you are comforted by the second point. The first point being God's the one who is afflicting you. The degree to which you understand that, believe that, and trust that will directly impact how comforting it is that he does not afflict from his heart. You're like, Luke, where where are we going? This is a roller coaster. Stay with me. When we talk about God being the one who afflicts, Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 1, verse 18. I don't have this on the screen, but he says, God is just in what he does. He's in the right And if you look at the rest of Lamentations chapter three, it starts with he does not afflict from his heart. But every other verse that's in in this chapter, majority of the verses, it's he does not or he does blank or he does blank. And it's talking about God doing things. And each one of those verses is God basically bringing upon judgment to the people. So Jeremiah is really trying to make this point. God is the one who afflicts. And you're probably still wondering, how is that good for me? Let me tell you why it's good. Because you can trust the one who is afflicting you. Why? Because it's God. Here's the thing. If it was anybody else, if anybody else was the one who is responsible for bringing affliction and condemnation onto you, then you'd you'd be scared. I don't want any part of that. But since it's God... You can trust in his goodness that his affliction has a purpose. And here's the thing with his affliction. It's the same thing as, as a, when a father or a mother disciplines a child. You know, Logan and I both, were, we have kids coming up in the next few months, and we're having conversations. And Sydney and I, my wife, we're having conversations with other parents that I respect, and we're doing book studies, and we're listening to sermons that are on parenting because we really want to get it right. And I think the, the point that is, is so important in parenting is how to discipline a child. Because discipline is so important. If you miss discipline, then you can lose control of where your, your son or your daughter goes. But if you discipline them well and explain the discipline to them, then they'll stay closer to you than ever. See, so this, is, this is how discipline should look. It should look like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry that I have to do this. But I also, like, we had conversations. You knew that this is how this works. You know that there's consequences for the things that you do. That's why I have to discipline you in this way. And when a child understands that, they actually understand, okay, you're doing this because you love me. And I'm sure you've heard parents say this before, like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And it's like, I, I just don't believe you. I feel like it's hurting me more. But I feel like God does this for us. You know, I feel like God looks at us, and it, it says in Scripture that he does not afflict from his heart. That's so important. You know, in, in Deuteronomy 28, and this is just backstory for the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy meaning second law. This is the second law that Moses wrote down on, on tablets for the people of Israel because in the book of Numbers, we have the two senses. We have the people who were supposed to go into the promised land, but then they were not doing the right thing, so they got sent into the wilderness for 40 years until the, all the old people died off. Then we have the new people. And so It sounds so morbid. I'm just summarizing the Old Testament. We have the, new, the new generation of people in It's the new generation, so it's got to be the same law, but reiterated to them in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 28, you can go here and and double-check me. It says, blessings for obedience, and it lists them out. And it says, curses for disobedience, and it lists them out. This is the same thing as a parent saying to their, their son or daughter, hey, when you do this, this is how you'll be disciplined for these things. And when you do this, this is how you'll be rewarded for these things. And the Israelites did the things that were disobedient and they received the curses that God said would come down on them. God prophesied this whole thing to them, exactly how it's gonna go. And it plays out just like he said it would, which shows his sovereignty and his providence. But what's so, so important to catch is that in his doing so, in his afflicting, in his bringing about the consequences that are just and right because God's a just God, in his doing so, He's not afflicting from his heart. It's so important. I'm probably going to say it a few more times. Just because I think about, you know, when Sydney and I are about to have our son, and there's going to be moments where I probably will have to discipline him. There, it's not probably. There will be moments where I have to discipline him because he's my son, and he's going to be crazy like I was, a rockhead. And, and I, I just, I, it's going to be so hard for me to conduct that discipline in a way that communicates to him, hey, this is hurting you right now, but I'm doing it because I love you and because there's a merciful restoration to come on the backside of this. Because when you think about the story of Israel, yeah, they got exiled, they got sent out of the promised land, scattered all about, but then there's some, some goodness that comes back to them. And, and actually, I want to go here. This is also Jeremiah writing, but it's in his own um, prophecy. This is Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 36 to 41. It's a little long, so listen in. Now, therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger. Catch this. I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. God's admitting I'm the one who's afflicting. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of the children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn on me. This is the gold right here, this verse. I will rejoice and doing them good and i will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul and that's that's the part that about brings me to tears because it's god saying hey when i afflict my heart is far from it it's almost and this is <sighs> It's hard to even say something like this without it even sounding heretical. It's almost like God is at war within himself. He's not. I promise he's a unity. But the way I look at it, it's like God is like, he's like, man, I don't want to bring this affliction. It's not what I want to do. This is strange for me. It's not natural. But then God says, hey, look at the flip side. Look, Look at the flip side of me. When I'm doing affliction, my heart's far from it. But when I show mercy, all my heart, all my soul. I love this. We, we have a God, we serve a God who delights in mercy. Jonathan Edwards summarizes it like this. Another great theologian, he says this. He's a God that delights in mercy and judgment is his strange work. It's strange to him. It's not natural. God does it because he is a just God, but his heart is not, it, there's, it, it's without of it. It's like recoiling within him. It's not what he desires to do per se. But when he gets to show mercy, that's his favorite. He loves to show mercy to us. So that's, that was the first point that I wanted to extinguish the doubt that God is good. And I hope that I, I was able to communicate that well, that yeah, God, God is good. And I, and I can prove it because when God even has to do the things that hurt us, his heart's not in it. But when he does the thing that he loves to do, the thing that's so good for you, that's all of his heart. And it's all of his soul. And he did it for Israel. He brought about a beautiful restoration. He brought all the people back. He used these wonderful men like Nehemiah and Ezra to come and rebuild the temple and to to rebuild the wall. And he used the, the king of Persia, Xerxes, to get the resources. Like God orchestrated a beautiful, merciful restoration, but it had to come after the affliction. His heart was not within the affliction, but his heart was with the merciful restoration. So I make my point that God is good. Second place that we're going is to establish the certainty. Establish the certainty that God is hallowed when you hope in him. And this is where it gets practical. This is kind of where um, you know, the, the, about 75% of the way through. And I really wanted to get um, something practical out of, okay, you, you got me. Like God is good. I understand that God is good. But what do I do with that? What do I do with knowing that God is good? Where do I go? And so I wanted to look at a scripture. I believe the answer is found in here. This is 1 Peter 3, 13 to 15. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, call that the fear of man, nor be troubled, be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I love this verse. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. And the word honor here, if you look back at the original Greek that it was recorded in, the the word is agiazo. Okay, so I'm going to put the definition up on here if you wanted to write it down. It means to hollow, to be holy, to sanctify. And interesting enough, it's actually the exact same word that was recorded when it was recording Jesus teaching us how to pray. So when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he says, hey, if you're going to pray, pray like this. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Agiazo be your name. And it's the same word, and here's why that's important. Because Jesus, in teaching us how to pray, his first priority, the first words out of our mouths when we pray, is hollow the name. Make God's name the biggest name, the most important name, the holiness name that you praise in the whole universe. Jesus made that clear. That's priority number one. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how do I do that? What do I do? How do I, how do I hallow hallow the Lord? How do I hallow his name? I understand that that's number one priority. What do I do? First Peter records it here. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, this is the core of Christianity, that we would understand the goodness of God And because we know the goodness of God and believe in it, even when it's affliction, even when it hurts us, we understand he's good. And now, because of his goodness, I can put my whole hope in him. That's how it ought to look. And so that's the point that that Peter is trying to communicate here. And when I think about this, I think about what this does for me emotionally if I really live this way. Like if I wake up in the morning and my first thought is, okay, today... Hallowed be your name. Everything I do, every conversation I have, every person I get to meet, person I talk to, everyone I hang out with, the work I do, all of it is for the purpose of hallowing your name. I got a defense for the hope that is in me. What does that do for me emotionally? Does it feel like restful? or Does it feel weighty? Does it, does it feel weighty or does it give me wings? Uh, I want you to think about that because for me, when I think about it, it's like, man, all, all the pressure is on God. He's the one who I put my hope in, so it's all on him. Here's the flip side of this. This is what the world would, would really like you to believe. I think this is the world's most favorite religion. I think it's called self-exaltation. And, and there's the, a quote that I pulled from a self-help book, and I put anonymous on here because it's not about defaming or libeling. I, don't even, I could get sued, I guess. I don't know how that works. Any law majors? No. Okay. I'm in the dark. All right. This is from a self-help book. says, I am me. In all the world, there is no one else exactly like me. Everything that comes out of me is authentically mine because I alone chose it. I own me, and therefore, I can engineer me. I am me, and I am okay. I think about that kind of mantra, which the world would love to profess, especially to college students, Hey, you, you wanna make money? You, you want a family, you want a white picket fence with the like you want you want the, the it life, it's up to you. You gotta work hard. You gotta look yourself in the mirror every morning and go, I, I can engineer my life. I'm capable of doing so. But what the world doesn't tell you is that when you live like this, when you put your hope in yourself, it's not wings, it's weight, and it will weigh you down. I wrote I wrote down what I think what I think the cost is of a life like this. This is what the weight feels like. To clear my own conscience, to forgive my own sin, find my own meaning, uphold my own cause, carry my own burdens, protect my own life, overcome my own fears, heal my own wounds, secure my own future, comfort myself in my own death. When that's the mantra, that's what comes with it. That's like the, the side effects in the commercials at the end where they're like, diarrhea. I don't know if I that's the first one that came to my mind. <laughs> Yikes. That's why I don't take medicine. Anyways, that's what the world would really like you guys to believe. You can engineer your own life if you work hard enough. It's all up to you. Put your hope in you. But They don't tell you about the weight that it puts on your shoulders. It's not worth it. It is so far from worth it. So as I come to a close and land this plane, the band, you guys can come up and, uh, and join me up here as we get set to move on. But I wanted to read this, this final verse. If you flip back in your, your Bible from 1 Peter 2, go to 1 Peter, sorry, 1 Peter 3 to 1 Peter 2, I want to look at verses 2 and 3. And this is where we'll land the plane tonight. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, it's funny that we're talking about newborn infants, because as I said, you know, we have a baby coming. I know Logan and Aaliyah have a baby coming. And the thing with babies is that when they're crying, you don't oftentimes know why they're crying, but when they're hungry, they're crying. And so it's like, if a baby is hungry... It's like, they're going to let you know. And this is kind of the imagery that Peter is using here. He's like, hey, this is, this is how Christians, new Christians and old Christians, all Christians, should have this longing for pure spiritual milk. What, is pure, what does the longing look like? The longing looks like, I want to read my Bible. I want to meet with mentors. I want to go to church. I want to be at Revive. I want to be in community groups. I want accountability partners. Like, I'm longing for pure spiritual milk so that I can grow up into salvation, so that I can grow and be sanctified and become the, the most righteous, holy version of me so that I can make a difference in this world. That's what the longing is. But what gets missed is the preposition that leads to the next verse. See, the if is there because... There's, there's something that the first verse is dependent on. See, everything that I just talked about, infants, us, Christians, longing for pure spiritual milk so that we can grow up in salvation, all of that is dependent on the following verse. What does it say? It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I wonder if there's, there's some of y'all in this room who you're wondering, I... Don't want to read my Bible. I wake up in the morning, and I have no desire to do it. I go to church because my friends are there. I go to Revive because the pretty girl's there. I go this place or that. Like, I, I'm doing the longing for pure spiritual milk. I'm doing the things that it looks like, but I don't have any actual desire here. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like something I want. And I'm telling you, the secret what I believe you might be missing, what I was missing a few years ago, is that it's if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Of course, if you haven't tasted that the Lord is good, why would you have any longing for pure spiritual milk? It makes no sense. It's, it's what Scripture says. That is dependent on have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you experienced a miracle in your life? Have you experienced his grace? Have you experienced the relationship that you can have with the God of the universe? Have you prayed and seen your prayers get answered by the king? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? And so tonight, I wanted to prove to you, God is good. Even in his affliction, he's good. What do we do with that goodness? We put all of our hope in him. And if you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't even know where to start. I don't like reading my Bible. I don't like doing this. I don't like doing that. Let me tell you, first things first, you got to taste that the Lord is good. And God's goodness is like, it's like a precious stone that has so many sides to it. Each way you look at it is more beautiful than the last, but I promise you the most beautiful version of God's goodness is the picture of Jesus with his arms nailed to a cross. That's the most beautiful version of his goodness because he sent his one and only son to this earth to die for you and for me so that I I don't have to perish, but that I can have eternal life with him. That's the most beautiful version of his goodness. And if you haven't experienced that goodness yet, then I'd love to have a conversation with you after this. You know, in in a second, we're going to bow our heads, we're going to close our eyes, and we're going to move on. But I'm going to hang out down by the front here, and there's going to be some leaders uh, from Revive as well who are going to be there. And my wife will be down there with me, girls, if you want to talk to a girl rather than me, I understand. We're going to be here because I want to have those conversations. If if you really have not experienced the goodness of God, and you go, you know what, I want that. And in fact, I want the most beautiful version. I want the relationship with him because I don't have it right now. Come have a conversation with us. Or or maybe you're in a different boat. Maybe you're in the spot of, okay, I remember his goodness. I tasted it once upon a time, but it's been a long time since then, and I don't really have the longing for the pure spiritual milk anymore either. What do I do then? Come have a conversation with us too. I promise you, there's prayers that you can pray. There's, there's like things that you can do. There's, there's a guy in scripture named David. David did something really, really bad in the Old Testament. And, and he comes to this place after he gets convicted and he writes this Psalm in 51. And he says, Lord, bring me back to the joy of my salvation. And that's a prayer that you can pray too. If you feel like, oh, the longing, it's long gone. I haven't tasted the goodness in a while. It can come back. Your relationship with the Lord is like a fire that never burns out. You can throw water on it. You can put a fan on it to try to blow out the flames. But there's something in every fire down at the bottom underneath the ashes and rubble. It's called the embers. And with the embers, you can always start that fire up again. In fact, that fire was never burnt out in the first place. So if you're in either of those boats, if, if you haven't felt the longing in a while and you want to talk about that or or if you're in the boat of, hey, I haven't experienced the goodness at all. I want a relationship with Jesus. Come on down. We'll pray together. But for now, let me pray for you guys and we'll close out tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. God, you are so good. And your goodness is natural for you. Judgment, it's strange. That's, that's not what you're, you're prone to. You're prone to mercy. You delight in mercy. And God, I pray that each and every one of us would understand that in a whole new way. That you would teach it to us. That you would make it so clear. Your goodness is your mercy. Your heart, your whole heart, your whole soul is in your mercy towards us. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that if there's any students in this room that are in either of those two boats that I described earlier, God, if they want a relationship with you, if it's something that they've been thinking about for a while, or if this is just a whole brand new idea tonight, God, I pray that they'd come down and have a conversation and just just open up, say, yeah, that what you talked about, the goodness, it's something that I've never experienced before, but I want it because the affliction I'm experiencing in my life, it's too heavy for me to hold on my own. The hope that I hope for in myself, it's too weighty for me me to keep going and I need to put my hope in something greater. God, I pray for those of us too who've tasted the goodness before and it's something that we want back. We want to experience your goodness in a whole new way. We want to long for the pure spiritual milk so that we can be sanctified, God, so that we can become people who are holy as you call us to be difference makers in this world. God, I pray that you'd meet with us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.